You're listening to audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia, where we believe in preaching the authoritative power of God's Word each and every week. For more content and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org. Go ahead and grab a copy of God's Word and meet me in Colossians chapter 1 this morning. As we launch our brand new series in Colossians, Embracing the Supremacy of Christ, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hands. Our ushers would be happy to bring you one. Embracing the Supremacy of Christ. As we begin this series, it's important for us to have some definitions on the table. Supremacy is the state or condition of surpassing all others in status, in power, and in authority. And we find this theme introduced in chapter 1 of Colossians in verse 17. It says this, and he is before all things, speaking of Christ, and in him all things hold together, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, and he, Christ, is the beginning itself, the beginning of all time, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, or as the NIV says, he might have the supremacy. Father, as we begin our series, God, Father, we pray for the supremacy of Christ in our lives, that he would have the preeminence in our hearts, in our decisions, in our attitudes, in our actions, in our relationships in our driving, in our buying, in our everything, that Christ would be supreme over it all, that he would be the Lord and the King of our hearts. And Father, I pray as we begin this series, I thank you, God, that Colossians is so Christ-focused. God, would you elevate our view of Jesus, diminish our view of sin, and God, help us to live for him, we pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said. During peak travel seasons of the year, approximately 5,000 planes will be found in the sky at any one hour of the day, which equates to approximately 50,000 airplanes in the sky during the day at peak travel seasons of the year. Now, if you're anything like me, you start to ask the question, how do all of these planes caught in this massive air traffic jam, not collide together, and everybody die. Well, the task of ensuring safety of a commercial or private aircraft falls on what is called air traffic control. It falls down to the tower. How many of you have ever been to an airport and you have seen that tower at the center of everything? Well, that tower reigns supreme over all. That tower sees all. It sees all of the planes and it knows all when the planes will take off, when the planes will land, what their uh, patterns are going to be. That tower is tasked with the supreme responsibility of keeping everybody safe. Now, I say almost every airport because there is one airport 50 miles northeast of Indianapolis. It's called Marion Municipal Airport, and it has no tower. It is literally every plane for themselves. An FAA spokesman said this, pilots using this field are expected to announce their intentions on a common radio frequency, and to coordinate with one another while on the ground 
and in their traffic patterns. In other words, every pilot in this airfield is given the impossible task of seeing all, knowing all, coordinating all for the safety of all. And of course, it was only a matter of time before disaster struck and two men lost their lives on the airfield at Marion Municipal Airport. You see, every wise pilot will understand and embrace the supremacy of the tower, the preeminence of the tower. They will give control. They will give authority. They will give full reign to the tower because they understand only the tower can see all, only the tower can know all, and only the tower can keep everybody safe. A wise Christian, in the same way, will embrace the supremacy of Christ because Christ surpasses us all in position, in power, in status, and authority. And we would be wise to embrace the reality of his preeminence over all creation. When we do, it provides safety. It ensures flourishing. It secures our very eternity. And that is the theme of the book of Colossians. That we would embrace the preeminence, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now, Colossians is a small book. The term Colossians came from the Greek word Colossus, which means huge, it means large, it means intimidating, which makes it ironic because the book of Colossians is a rather small book, four chapters, 95 verses, written to a small church in a small town, but with massive ramifications for life. The truths in this book have survived the test of time. Because when we embrace the supremacy of Jesus Christ in life, these truths are earth-shattering, window-rattling, faith-fortifying, future-creating, relationship-fixing, poor-serving, church-beautifying, racial-reconciling truths that will transform all of life. That is why we are going to walk through this book chapter by chapter, verse by verse. As we begin this book, we find at the center of this book is, at the heart of this book, is a lie that has to be confronted. Point number one is heart, a lie that must be confronted. Uh, You definitely cannot see it. It says, point number one, heart, a lie that must be confronted. Verses one and two says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, Colossae is located in modern-day Turkey. It was a province of the Roman Empire, and it was located near the Lycus River. It was likely named Colossae because of the colossal boulders that were found in its geographic place, but also possibly because of the colossal mountains that were found not far off from it. It was known as a colossal space, and today it has even used this area to mine marble and stone. But the name is ironic. Colossae at one point was considered one of the six preeminent cities in the Roman Empire. But by the time Paul wrote this letter, it had lost its prominence and preeminence in the land due to two new cities called Hierapolis and Laodicea. Now in Hierapolis, which was not far away, These salt baths had been discovered. I had a picture up here, and you absolutely cannot see it because it's all white. So it just kind of washes out. 
But they have, and you can go over to these uh, to Hierapolis today. They have these salt baths, these hot springs that you can go in. It's kind of like a luxury bath, and people will swim in it. It's kind of like being in a hot tub um, all day long. It's beautiful. And so people flocked to Hierapolis, and so people moved out of Colossae into Hierapolis, and then a new city below Hierapolis called Laodicea was planted. Now, the water from Hierapolis, which was nice and hot and warm and beautiful, would flow down the mountain to Laodicea. And by the time it got there, it was neither hot nor cold. It was lukewarm, which is where we get the idea of lukewarmness as John wrote his letter to the church of Laodicea in Revelation. There's a lot of history bound up in this small piece of geography. So, by the time... Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, Colossae was past its prime, and it would soon be abandoned. This letter was written about 60, 61 AD, and just three to four years later, Colossae would suffer a massive earthquake that would level the city, and it would never be repopulated again. So before this city's demise, in this small town at a small church, Paul writes this colossal book about the supremacy and the preeminence of Jesus Christ and all of life. The church was began and started by two natives of Colossae. Two natives of Colossae, Philemon and Epaphras. Eighty miles west of Colossae was a city called Ephesus. In Ephesus, Paul the Apostle, which we see here in verse 1, Paul an Apostle by Christ, of Christ Jesus by the will of God, set up and established himself for two years at Ephesus. Paul preached the gospel, began a church at Ephesus, and these two men, Epaphras and Philemon, traveled the 80-mile journey all the way to Ephesus to hear Paul preach. When they got there, these men's lives were radically transformed. When they returned to Colossae, they knew our lives are never going to be the same. We've met Jesus. We can't ever do life the same. So Philemon, he opens up his house, and he invites the church to begin in his home. But not only does he open up his house, he opens up his heart. Because what is fascinating about Philemon, as we will discover, is he was a a slave owner. One of his slaves, as recorded in the book of Philemon, had escaped. His name was Onesimus. And Onesimus, in all of his journeys, bumps into, can you believe it, the Apostle Paul. And in his journey, as fleeing for his life, bumps into the Apostle Paul. Paul converts Onesimus, and Onesimus becomes a believer and convinces him to go back to Philemon, who is also now a brand new believer in Christ. And he tells Philemon in his letter, open your heart to this man who has been your slave. Because you are made in the image and likeness of Christ, you are equal. No longer treat him as your property. Treat him as your brother. You see, the gospel was about to radically transform everything in Rome. And that's why it was considered a threat. It was not just a threat to Caesar. It was a threat to the economics of Rome because Rome was built on the backs of slaves. Philemon was changed. Epaphras goes back. We find Epaphras in chapter 1, verse 7. It says, just as you learned it, that is the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. 
Epaphras went back to Colossae. He preached the gospel, gathered the church together, likely went to Laodicea and Hierapolis and started churches there, which we hear about later in the New Testament. But in the midst of this all, as this small church in a small town is getting going, there is a lie that is gaining traction in the culture. In fact, several lies about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul, who has never met the Colossians and has never visited the Colossians, writes to the Colossians in the authority of Jesus Christ to declare who Jesus really is in the midst of cultural lies that were attacking the deity of Christ. Now, the two lies were this, and you might not be able to see these on the overhead, but the first lie came out of what is called mystical polytheism. We use those words every day, don't we? And the other lie came out of oppressive legalism. And the first lie was this. The first lie, which came out of mystical polytheism, said this. Jesus is prominent, but he is not preeminent. That is that Jesus is one of many gods, and he's really important amongst all of those gods, but he is not the one true God. Now, Rome, when it began to spread and it began to conquer all of these nations, instead of identifying one God to worship, Rome allowed everybody that was conquered to worship their own God. So the Roman Empire became a very polytheistic melting pot of religious points of view. And as a result, all of these Roman provinces would worship many gods. They would worship Hermes, the god of money, Aphrodite, the god of sex. They would worship uh, Apollos, the god of music. And so Jesus became just one of a bunch of other gods that was already being served. And the lie was that Christ was prominent, but not preeminent. And that is why Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 18, he is the head of the church, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning of time itself, the firstborn from the dead who rose from the dead. That is that in everything, he might be preeminent. The first lie was that Jesus was prominent but not preeminent, and this is the same lie that has invaded our culture today in America, is it not? Is it the same lie? And see, here's the thing about it. If, if you, to say to people that Jesus is prominent, You'll never offend anybody. You'll never offend anybody when you say, Jesus is prominent. He's one of many gods. He's the one that I serve, but I know that you have your God, and I, I don't want to say whether or not your God is right or wrong or my God is right or wrong, but I, I worship Jesus, and it's, it works for me. You're never going to offend anybody like that. In fact, I was watching an interview with uh, Chris Pratt not too long ago, and Chris Pratt was saying, well, Hollywood's not anti-Christian. Chris. That's because in Hollywood, Jesus is one of a thousand gods that you can pick. Of course it's not. But the second you say that Jesus is preeminent amongst all other gods, supreme and ruling over them all, and he is the one exclusive way to God the Father through Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, people lose their minds. Because we live in inclusivism, which says, if Jesus says he's the only way, he can't possibly be true. And so Paul is writing into a culture that's very similar to our own, and it begs the question, how do we defend the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ when we live in a polytheistic culture? 
And that is one of the lies that I hope we are going to spend time unpacking as we walk through Colossians. Are you excited for that? I'm looking forward to that. But here's the second one. And it birthed out of oppressive legalism. And it was this idea that Jesus was supplemental, but not sufficient. Jesus was supplemental, but not sufficient. In other words, Jesus was helpful in making you right with God, but not essential. In other words, you could have Jesus as your faith to make you right with God, but you had to have other stuff. So you had to have works, and you had to have baptism, and you had to have food and drink and festivals and Sabbaths. That's why it says in uh, chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink, or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are all a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is writing into is to address this lie that is very common in our culture, that if you want to be right with God and you want to assure that you have eternal uh, relationship with God, then it's Jesus plus a bunch of other stuff. It's Jesus plus church attendance. It's Jesus plus money in the offering plate. It's Jesus plus you got to be part of the right political party. It's Jesus plus um, some specific church. It's Jesus plus a bunch of other stuff. What Paul is writing into is looking and he's saying this. It's Jesus plus nothing. Nothing. Jesus Christ alone is sufficient to make us right with God the Father. Faith in him and him alone makes us right with God. And so Paul, our author is writing to a people who were regularly scoffed for believing in the supremacy of Christ. And we are a people who will be scoffed at for believing in the exclusivity and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We will. And here's the thing. The acid of criticism that seeps into our lives from our culture as we stand for the exclusivity of Christ, it's an acid that can eat away at the foundations of our faith, right? Especially when our faith is weak and when our faith vacillates. And so when I think about classes that Bruce is going to lead, like foundations, essential truths for tough times, there's a reason why we do this is because so many of us, we just assume, well, I'm, I'm in Jesus, I'm going to be fine. No. Your culture is going to do everything it can to erode the foundations of your faith so you will not live it out, you will not stand for Christ, you will not be different from the world. And so we want to offer these classes to help build the foundations of your faith and make it strong like an oak tree. That's what we want. Because when we are confronted with the laughter and the scorn of our modern age, we are tempted to fall for the lie. Well, is Jesus just one of a thousand other gods? Well, is it Jesus plus a thousand other things? It is Jesus plus nothing. And we must stand in the midst of cultural opposition for that truth. It's the lie that Paul was confronting here. That's one reason why Paul wrote this, was to confront the lie that the Colossians were trying to resist. But secondly, there was a goal. There was a goal for Paul to write this book, and we find it, in verse 2, and these identity markers that Paul gives to us, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So the point number two is this goal, or Paul had a goal, a maturity that must be developed. A maturity that must be developed. You see, when a family adopts a child, especially a young one, it is not uncommon to rename that child. 
You know, Scott and Courtney, when you guys adopted Joel, his original name was not actually Joel. And I actually have forgotten what his original name was, but it doesn't matter because you renamed him. And in naming him Joel, you gave him that name intentionally because it means the Lord Yahweh is God. And that was an identity marker for their son. And not only identity marker, but an aim, a goal for Joel to shoot for. Because I believe with all of my heart that when they named him Joel, they were praying that Joel one day would give his heart and his life to the Lord, his God. And so what God does here in this text is God, Paul shows us all of the identity markers that that God has given to us. All the new names that God has given to us to help us understand the goal toward maturity that we are supposed to pursue. And so here in this text, and here's why this is important. You need to know who you are. Because who you are determines what you do in life. If you don't know who you are, you won't know what you're supposed to aim for. You have to know who and whose you are. And you have been named by God in this text. And first of all, it says, to the saints and to the faithful brothers. So the first identity marker that we see here in this text is we are brothers. We are sisters in Christ. This is a familial term. It's a term of adoption that we have been adopted into the same family. And that our new identity in Christ is not dependent on our social status our gender, our ethnicity, our class, our political party, our identity is rooted in our common ancestry in Christ. Amen? Jesus Christ reigns supreme over his spiritual family, which means this. If we're a family, we have to operate like a family. And you know what family does? Family spends time what? The old adage goes, the family that eats together stays together. The family that eats, prays together stays together. Amen? So we need to find ways to spend time with each other. That's why we do small groups. That's why we think Sunday morning is so important. That's why we get together and pray, because we believe that in the getting of together and the proximity to each other, that is where we actually start to become family. We spend time together, we eat together, we do life together, we have spats together, amen? And then we forgive each other, and we heal with each other. We get together because the church is more than an entity, it is a family. So the question is, are we going to operate like a family or not? Because that's our identity. Secondly, he calls us faithful in this text. It's fascinating that he calls the Colossians faithful because so many of Paul's letters are written to address problems in the church. Uh, Many of the Christians were falling away in 1 John and in Hebrews. There was a sense of hopeless despair in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. People were twisting the gospel in the the city of Galatia. People, women were fighting at uh, Philippians or Philippi. There was incest, and people were taking people to court at Corinth. But in Colossians, there were no real problems inside of the church. They were all outside the church. And so this little church in this little town 
received this little letter to remain faithful under the social and cultural pressures to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. And our prayer for us as a church, this gives us direction. To be a faithful church. Church, do we want to be a church that is labeled by God as faithful? Okay. Then here's how that works. Because I think this is what the Colossians did. Is they had a thick skin and soft hearts. You have to have thick skin as a Christian to endure the acid of criticism in this culture. You have to. The problem is that there's too many of us in churches today who have thin skin and a tough heart. And God says it needs to be the other way around. A thick skin, soft heart, so that we can endure the criticism of our culture and have a tender heart toward our enemies and love them. That's what it looks like to be faithful in a culture applying pressure. Are you with me? But then here's the final one. This is so cool. He calls us saints. I want you to look at your neighbor and just tell them, hey, I'm a saint. And now some of you did it, and you're, you're like, I'm not going to do that because I'm not sure I believe it. Like when I woke up this morning, I didn't feel like a saint. I didn't look like a saint. I didn't, when I was yelling at my kids, I wasn't acting like a saint. When I cut that guy off in traffic, I wasn't acting like a saint. When I looked at that thing on my phone last week, I wasn't a saint. When I spoke to my spouse that way, I wasn't a saint. What does it mean to be a saint? What's the criteria? Do you have to perform a miracle and raise someone from the dead? Look at what it says in the text. To the saints and faithful brothers in what? Christ. If you are in Christ, if you have placed your faith and trust in the fact that God became a man, lived a perfect life, put himself on the cross in your place, took your penalty, I was buried and rose again and ascended into heaven and is coming back one day to take us home. If you have placed your unwavering confidence and trust in that fact that Jesus is risen and coming again and is the only way to be right with God, you are in Christ, which means you are a saint. Which means this is what it, what it tells us about being a saint. Sainthood is not dependent on how God views you right now. It's dependent on how God sees you when you're perfected in Christ. I was uh, sitting in my chair uh, at home the other day, um, kind of putting some of the finishing touches on my message, and uh, um, Izzy, our youngest, climbed up behind me in the chair, and she, she'll stand up behind me and she'll grab a comb, and it drives my wife crazy because uh, Izzy will grab these combs and then lose them. And so anyway, it's a point of contention in our home and Jesus has to reign supreme over all of that application. Amen? Let's go. Um, but anyway, Izzy gets behind me. She starts combing my hair and I love it when she combs my hair. I mean, I just, I, I love that. And um, I turned around and I looked at her. I just gave her a big smile and she goes, daddy, you're wearing your glasses. So I took my glasses off and I put them right on Izzy and she goes, daddy, I look just like you. And I had that moment where I got this just brief image in my mind of what she could possibly look like when she was fully grown. And that's how God views you every moment of every day when you are in Christ. 
He doesn't see you as you are. He sees you as you will become perfect in Jesus Christ. That's how God sees you. Look at what it says in chapter 1, verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Look at what it says in chapter 4, verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 12 says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may be and stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Here's the point of sainthood. Sainthood is to remind you that God sees you as perfect. Now the challenge is to live in a manner worthy of your title of saint. That means to start working toward becoming what you already are in Jesus Christ. Is that beautiful? Jesus does not treat us as our sins deserve, and all along the way, as we mess up and as we fall and as we stumble, he says, you're making it, you're getting there, you're making progress, and I'm not going to lose hope that one day you're going to be perfect in Christ. That is the goal. And so that's what I'm praying for us. I'm praying for us that we would be a faithful church. I'm praying that we would be a people with a, a thick skin and a soft heart, thick to endure the acid of criticism in our culture, but with soft and gentle hearts toward those who do not yet know Jesus the way we do. I am praying for us that we would truly be a family of families, not just a group of people who sit close to each other on a Sunday morning, but a people who have really knit their lives together through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I am praying that we would strive in all of God's grace, not our own strength, God's grace to become who we are in Jesus. But here's the key to the entire book. I'm going to be upfront with you on this. Nothing that we are about to talk to over the next several months is going to work unless you embrace this key element. Here's the key. Are you ready? Point number three, there is an authority that must be embraced. There is an authority that must be embraced. And this is the key to the entire book. Look again at chapter 1, verse 18. And he, that is Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Packed up and embedded in this nine-letter word of supremacy or preeminence is a reality that most of us struggle with called authority. And if we are going to thrive and flourish in Christ as believers, we have to answer very difficult questions like this. Who is the king of my life? Who reigns supreme on the throne of my heart? Who governs my life? Who answers the question? Who controls or says or is allowed to speak into my sexuality? Who has power over my tongue and into my eyes? Who reigns supreme over it all? Because the reality is there's a lot of Christians out there who are not submitted to the supremacy of Christ. And frankly, there are moments in my week where I'm one of them. It's something that we all wrestle with. Amen? 
Now, in Paul's day, supremacy in his culture was just a naturally accepted idea. Because of King Caesar or kings in their region, someone always reigned supreme. And in our day, we tend to be okay with it as long as um, the conductor in the orchestra reigns supreme, or the quarterback on the field reigns supreme, or the tower on the runway reigns supreme. But it gets uncomfortable when things start to get closer to home, when we start talking about handing authority over to another in sticky areas of life. What do I allow in front of my eyes on my phone or my TV? How do I respond to someone when I don't get what I want? Who has the right to influence difficult financial decisions in my life when I know it's going to affect my family? How do I handle stress in my marriage and who, who speaks into that experience? What do I do when someone has deceived me or betrayed me and how do I respond to that? Who has the authority to govern all of these uncomfortable choices? The story was told many years ago of Babe Ruth. And Babe Ruth was the great home run hitter of the New York Yankees baseball team. And during one particular at-bat, the umpire, Babe Pinelli, Babe apparently was a popular name back then. It's the 20s. And so he called Ruth out on strikes. Now, there was stunned silence in the stands. Ruth turned to Pinelli and he said to him, you realize there's 40,000 people here who all know that that last one was a ball. To which Pinelli replied, Maybe so, but mine is the only opinion that matters. The question of preeminence, the question of supremacy, really answers these questions. Whose opinion matters most? Whose authority in my life matters most? And not just in the big moments, in the little moments of life. Who am I going to listen to when life gets hard? Now, is it going to be the cultural gurus of our day? The Dr. Phil's and the Oprah's, the Tony Evans, the Joel Osteen's, the self-help magazines or the Google searches that we can find like, hey, what do I do about this in my life and how do I fix my marriage? Google, help me out. Like Google has become God in our culture. We're looking for authorities. And so where do we go to find help in difficult times? We go to Google. Google. Is it going to be our feelings? How does this decision make me feel? Will it make me happy? Can I be true to myself? Can I YOLO if I make this decision? Is that a thing? Can I YOLO if I... Is it going to be others? Am I going to let the opinion of others rule and dominate and dictate the decisions that I make in my life? What will others think? How will this reflect on me? How will this impact my reputation? Are people going to like me if I make this decision? Do you see how that is a supreme and governing preeminent authority in life? Or just pragmatically, whatever works for you in the moment, what's going to get me from this step to the next step in the best possible position with the least amount of pain? What works in the moment? Or are we going to embrace the reality? that Jesus Christ is preeminent over all 
creation. Will we embrace the reality that Jesus Christ reigns supreme over all creation, whether we like it or not? And that either we will bow our knee and surrender to him today, or one day in eternity we will bow our knee before him as judge. Which will it be? Look at verse 18. It says again, he is the head of the body, the church. He is beginning the firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning of time that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the creator of time itself. Everything belongs to him. There is not an inch in creation where Christ cannot point and say, mine. He is supreme. So the question is, will we embrace this truth in every area of life? Or will we resist it? Now, here's what will happen. As we go through the rest of this letter and as we unpack the realities and implications of this truth that Jesus reigns supreme and is preeminent, if we embrace this in life, here's what will happen for you. You will experience conviction. You will experience conviction because inevitably you will discover that there are areas of life where God does not currently reign supreme. It will create conviction. And it will produce within you repentance. Because as you desire to allow Jesus to reign supreme, that will cause us to run to him and say, Jesus, I'm sorry, please take control, full control of my life. And what will produce as a result of that, as you experience conviction and repentance, you'll experience transformation. Change will begin to occur in your life. There's... If you're in a broken marriage, you'll begin to change as a husband or as a wife. If, if you're frustrated in your home and you start to surrender teens as, as you are called to, to your parents' authority, you will start to see things change. As we start to work differently, everything will change. Can we use some change? And here's what we'll begin to enjoy. We'll find joy, peace, and hope as we surrender to Christ. But here's what will happen if we don't. If we don't embrace the supremacy of Christ in life and allow him to be preeminent in king, then Colossians is going to be a slog. It's going to be frustrating, irritating, infuriating. It won't make any sense, and you're not going to like it. Because the entire book is about embracing the preeminence, the supremacy, the authority of Christ in everyday life. Here's the good news. Our king is a good king. And I'm willing to give my life to a good king. Wise pilots embrace the supremacy of the tower because they know it ensures their safety and flourishing. Wise Christians will embrace the supremacy of Christ because it ensures joy, peace, hope, and flourishing. My question is, as we begin, will you position your heart and surrender to the Lord and say, Jesus, have it all. Father, we pray, God, that that would be the posture of our hearts today as we begin this series, that Jesus would reign supreme over our lives, that he would have the preeminence over it all, that in every area of no matter how big or how small, that Jesus would be king of it all. Pray this in the wonderful name of our good, kind, 
gentle, patient, loving King. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia. For more audio, content, and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org.